Welcome to this episode of the Sports Medicine Science and Performance Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andy Franklin Miller. Hello, I'm Dr. Andy Franklin Miller and host of this podcast. And today, rather than interviewing and discussing one of the papers in the review with its author, I'm going to spend a bit of time expanding on my favorite paper in this week's review, uh, titled Age-Related Degeneration of the Lumbar Paravertebral Muscles, Systematic Review and Three-Level Meta-Regression by Alex Dalloway um, at Coventry University. It's an interesting paper um, because age-related degeneration of skeletal muscle is characterized, as we know, by intramuscular fat infiltration and loss of overall muscle tissue or muscle volume. This combination gives a concomitant loss of muscle force generation and we like to think that that decreased strength, that decreased capacity can lead to poor functional outcomes. And there are various studies that have demonstrated that this increases morbidity and mortality because of the term sarcopenia. And this is age-related degeneration within the muscle characterized by that intramuscular fat and loss of muscle tissue. And we know that there's a combination there in terms of the muscle morphology, the lack of function, and the lack of strength. And sarcopenia itself is a major health concern and socioeconomic burden. And there's estimates of over £2.5 billion in the UK and $18.5 billion in the US in terms of the cost directly related to lack of muscle function. This sort of research, though, is complicated um, because there are multiple different definitions. And who's to say, really, that is actually just the sarcopenia that contributes to falls or contributes to lack of mobility and increased social care, uh, or can in some cases relate to pain. Our interest at SSC in sarcopenic change really has focused on fat infiltration of the paravertebral muscles, which we use to target a strength and conditioning program in our management of lower back pain, published by Dr. Neil Welsh, um, BMJ Open Sport and Exercise Medicine. And I reference that link in the introduction of this week's review. So that's broadly why the paper caught my eye insofar as this posterior chain musculature we think contributes uh, to low back pain, but also clearly as the aging population uh, are affected more by sarcopenia, should it be more obvious? This review includes multifidus, erectus spinae, psoas and quadratus laborum, all contributing to the stability of the lumbar spine, uh, although, of course, multifidus demonstrates that its role is probably larger, where the larger, more superficial muscles surrounding that lumbar region uh, act as torque generators for spinal movement. The psoas, of course, primarily affects a muscle of the hip, um, and the erectus spinae primarily extends the muscles of the back. Quadratus lumborum brings in some lateral rotation, although we don't really understand the independent roles of all of these muscles. And as I've been prone to bang on about in nauseam, um, muscles very rarely act in isolation. And so trying to group them as such is a little bit futile. Uh, One of the big features that this review highlighted were that sort of previous studies in this, very few have measured the morphology of all of those lumbar paravertebral muscles at the same time. There's been a fair few focus on the paravertebral muscles without looking at multifidus or rectus spinae or without looking at psoas and quadratus lumborum. And so this authors tried to group all of this together. But of course, with that, there are considerable variation in the methodological factors across those studies, making comparing findings difficult, which therefore makes it difficult to understand the role of the lumbar musculature during aging. 
There was no quantitative analysis of all of the research, and hence there's the justification for doing this review. And the systematic review was registered properly on Prospero uh, in terms of the prospect of register of systematic reviews and followed PRISMA guidance in its reporting. Risk of bias was assessed um, using the National Institute of Health uh, study quality assessment tools and reported on each of the included studies. Um, they started off with a lot of studies, 4,777 records identified in June 2019, um, and then uh, ended up with 3,253 to screen, which reduced that substantially down to 165 full-text articles, of which 34 were included in the meta-analysis. Um, the reasons for exclusion were pretty clear in terms of insufficient age range, wrong population, wrong lumbar levels, wrong muscles, no imaging, uh, which makes a lot of sense in terms of the exclusion. One of the amazing things about this paper, which is published in Experimental Gerontology, I feel is the graphical overview, table three in the paper, uh, showing uh, each of the included studies, study design, the numbers in the sample size, the population, the age range, sex, BMI, health assessment, outcome measures, risk of bias, and the meta-analysis, all included in one fantastic visualization. I've included a snippet both on Twitter and in my review, but really you've got to look at the paper in order to, to see the beauty of this uh, in how that you can present results. And I think the authors really have to be commended for it. It's certainly the best uh, presentation of results that I've seen. What do the results show? Well, we know that those paravertebral muscles undergo degeneration morphologically as part of healthy aging. All of the patients in this population were healthy. They had no other um, uh, pathology, uh, which might be a reason for why they would have indiscriminate change. So we know that increases in fat infiltration were more obvious as part of a healthy aging uh, than reduction in muscle size. And that suggests that fat infiltration might be a better indication of age-related decline in the lumbar musculature. Um, indeed, given the predominance of type 1 fibers in the uh, lumbar paravertebral muscles and the knowledge that type 1 fibers tend to accumulate fat deposits with age, whereas faster twitch fibers typically exhibit greater atrophy with age, it's therefore unsurprising and almost confirmatory that the fat infiltration here was more apparent degenerative feature. Can we take that into a non-sarcopenic population uh, whereby the muscle isn't working because of pain inhibition or because of decreased function? Well, look, the authors go on to talk about some of the um, sex differences and therefore muscle-specific differences. Males exhibited in this uh, meta-analysis greater paravertebral muscle atrophy than females. They started off with a greater muscle mass and so therefore have potential, um, therefore a greater potential for atrophy with age, but it may not really reflect the differences in lifestyle, physical activity, um, and that we know that physical activity reduces with aging almost equally amongst men and women uh, and attenuates the loss of lower limb muscle volume in men but less in women. And so it might be possible that men experience greater age-related muscle atrophy in other muscles such as in the lower limb, um, but certainly in this meta-analysis, um, males more atrophy than females. An explanation for this might well be down to the specific muscle fiber phenotypes. Males possess a greater proportion of type 2 muscle fibers in the erector spinae in women, uh, and whilst type 1 fibers are more affected by inactivity and denervation, type 2 are more susceptible to the effects of aging, 
And so therefore, maybe that's what we're seeing here regarding a sex differential rather than just age-specific loss of physical activity. Muscle as a group significantly moderated the relationship between the fat infiltration and aging was approaching significance for moderating the relationship between muscle atrophy itself. There's certainly a, a selection of paravertebral muscles might be important when evaluating that age-related change. Uh, but really, I think what this study shows is that um, fat infiltration is appropriate and occurs almost more visibly than muscle atrophy, particularly in female patients. We know with advancing age, a redistribution of fat and increase in non-contractile tissue between muscles is observed. And so it's likely that that fat infiltration is an overestimate. Um, and so it might also explain why atrophy is seen and focused in the paraspinal muscles. decreases uh, as the older patients get and therefore it's likely to reduce in result in atrophy and fat accumulation. The results of a current review suggest that erectus spinae and quadratus lumborum, which are frequently overlooked, experience the greatest degenerative changes amongst the lumbar musculature with normal aging and that they, these muscles themselves should be evaluated when determining age-related change in that part of the spine. Interestingly, the researchers looked at the levels or compare, compared the levels of L1, 2, 2, 3, 3, 4, 5, S1 and found that actually assessing fat infiltration across all of the levels simultaneously provided greater effect size estimate, whereas measurements taken at the high levels provided the most conservative estimate. So if you look just at L1 and L2, you really didn't see a reliable change, whereas if you compared the whole of the lower muscle, uh, then it was much more accurate. Of course, these primarily relate to CT and MRI scan, and they looked at ultrasound studies, which showed rather conversely that muscle size increased with age in contrast to studies utilizing MRI or CT. This suggests there are some questions about whether ultrasound can be an accurate imaging modality when looking at intramuscular fat generation or whether it overestimates or underestimates the muscle volume. Whereas obviously typically an MRR or CT do not consider fat infiltration as part of the muscle, whereas ultrasound measurements tend to involve the whole muscle. Um, and that difficulty in differentiating certainly suggests that ultrasound here may not be a good measure uh, for addressing uh, the factors. So look, in summary, this is a great systematic review, well presented. Uh, and uh, highlights that there are significant age-related changes, particularly fat degeneration within the lumbar musculature as part of a sarcopenic process. Does it give an immediate ready reference range or a guide? No, it doesn't, because actually the standardization of the approach of these studies is very different. And certainly NIHR funding for this study supports that in the sense that a reference range should be the next step in producing that so that we can determine deviation from the norm. From my perspective, I think it's a very interesting study and shows that actually sarcopenic changes which appear in a much younger population or in a comparable level, which certainly suggests that we see that in younger patients with lower back pain, suggests that actually a lack of physical function or physical activity or indeed a reduction in capacity of those paravertebral muscles could be responsible for a resultant increase in bony loading of the lumbar spine. And as such, I think it provides us an interesting target 
in order to try to address those patients. Uh, I hope you have a chance to read the review. Uh, the link is in the show notes uh, for this podcast, uh, along with uh, a link to the actual paper itself. And I would commend the authors for producing a really very interesting and incredibly well-presented review. So the second paper that I want to uh, talk about today was published uh, online, published ahead of print uh, in the Medicine and Science in Sport and Exercise. Uh, and the title of that piece is Diagnosis of Exercise-Induced Bronchoconstriction in Swimmers Context Matters by Michael Leahy from University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Um, look, it's an interesting piece. Um, we know that um, exercise-induced bronchoconstriction or exercise-induced asthma, as it's commonly called, is transient. It's a reversible narrowing of the airways following a bout of exercise. Uh, and therefore, in order to diagnose it, we often need to have a formal uh, method of diagnosis because of the uh, World Anti-Doping Association uh, potential for misuse of bronchodilators uh, as a performance enhancer in sport. And so making the diagnosis of exercise-induced asthma uh, usually uses a, a test called the Eucapnic Voluntary Hypernea Test or EVH test, where for six minutes um, you inspire a, a dry gas which cools the airways uh, and seems to replicate that um, stimulus thought to be responsible for exercise-induced bronchospasm. And then following that, you can perform lung spirometry and note the decline in spirometry. Of course, swimmers are different insofar as that the air is not usually dry. Um, it's almost always more humid. And also the environmental conditions of uh, chlorine exposure, which rests just above the pool water surface, uh, can also be an exacerbator. Uh, and as such, the authors question whether the EVH test is actually appropriate in order to make that diagnosis um, in swimmers because the inspirate doesn't replicate the swimming environment. Um, and so they quite rightly highlight that a bronchial propagation method that actually exposes swimmers to chlorinated aspirate is the way to go. Um, so what do they do? They took 15 swimmers, 10 female, 5 male, from the University of British Columbia swim team. Uh, and so these were normal uh, asymptomatic subjects. Um, the experimental design showed uh, on three separate occasions they completed the standard EVH test in the lab, a modified EVH uh, in a chlorinated environment, and then a swim test, uh, which makes sense. It's actually, they muddied the waters a little bit because three of their participants had a medical diagnosis of asthma, and two of those subjects would, had been using bronchodilators to manage their uh, asthma symptoms, and one did not. Uh, so the results here are somewhat confusing insofar as they compared the bronchoconstrictive responses to the lab-based typical EVH test, then a chlorinated version of the test and strenuous trim exercise. Um, what they found was that the FEV1 and the peak expiratory flow values were lower after the bronchial challenges with the EVH test in the lab compared to the novel test EVH with the chlorinated acid inspirate. Um, despite the subjects overall uh, achieving lower ventilation. And uh, I guess the, the question here is, are they studying the right subjects? The purpose of an EVH test is to identify those with symptoms of exercise-induced asthma. Um, we would not necessarily expect to see uh, reductions in, in, asymp in, a, sorry, in asymptomatic uh, athletes. And as such, by having a group with only three asthmatics in the group, they potentially 
negated their uh, reliability because of the EVH uh, chlorinated test uh, would likely only appear to be more benefit if those subjects of uh, a 10% fall in FEV1 being diagnostic. So I think it raises an important question about the ten test sensitivity and specificity, um, but also the highlights the potential uh, for an underdiagnosis in a swimmer uh, because the environmental inspirate allergen uh, is chlorine, which is not tested in the standard EVH. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to a verbal summary of uh, two of those papers. Let me know on Twitter whether it's something worth doing, uh, and we will mix and match this between speaking to the authors uh, of a selected paper or indeed a verbal summary. Uh, thanks for listening.